On almost every episode of the Diabetes Canada podcast, we discuss exciting new developments in diabetes research. But did you know that every single one of these projects needed ethics board approval? I'm Krista Lamb, and today I'm talking to Dr. Elizabeth Stevenson about what research ethics are and why they're important to those living with diabetes. Dr. Stevenson is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Toronto and section head of cardiac electrophysiology at the Hospital for Sick Children. She's been a member of the Sick Kids Research Ethics Board since 2007 and chair of the board since 2015. Welcome, Dr. Stevenson. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So to start, I wanted to get you to explain what research ethics is, because I don't think everybody listening is going to understand that term. Absolutely. So research ethics uh, is a field of ethics that looks at the legal and ethical issues that exist within human subjects research. It evolved out of a, a long history, unfortunately, of ethical violations in medical research, starting all the way back with yellow fever research in the 1700s and evolving through the war crimes atrocities of World War II. We now have a formal process in Canada and also around the world where all human subjects research projects are evaluated by the ethics board prior to being allowed to move forward to make sure that all of the participants are protected and the research is being done in the most ethical way possible. I often hear people who are involved with diabetes research, particularly patient partners, people that are patients involved in research, and they don't always understand what the REB does. So they'll hear a researcher talking about, you know, they have to get research ethics board approval if they want to make a change, things like that. So they sort of start to see it as almost a barrier. And I think that's partly because they just don't understand the purpose. So why is it so important to have research ethics board approval and the research ethics board involved with research projects? I think that the main reason that it becomes critical is it's very easy for the people who are actually doing the research or funding the research to get very caught up in their scientific goals, which is fantastic, but somebody needs to be looking out for the individuals who are participating in the research. So it's important to make sure that you have an impartial body, such as a research ethics board, that examines the research and makes sure that it's being done in the way that maximizes the benefits and minimizes the risks for all of the participants. And you do research at a children's hospital, and I'm thinking that must be a very different process than working with adults. So how is it different when you're looking at children and that population? With kids, they're uh, often, particularly the youngest kids, not able to uh, make their own sophisticated decisions about whether or not they want to participate in research. One of the primary foundations in research ethics is that participation in research needs to be informed and that it needs to be voluntary. And so uh, in order to do that, for kids, you often end up working with substitute decision makers, most often a parent or guardian. And so when we look to communicate about research studies, we're not actually often communicating with the participant, which is the child, but with the family. And we need to engage that entire family to make sure that they are informed. We also accept a lower level of risk than we accept for an adult. Uh, and the reason for that is that at any time uh, that you have a substitute decision maker taking a risk on behalf of another, 
you have to be more cautious. So we look more for primary benefit to participating in the research of the children. And we also look very carefully at the issue of capacity. So capacity is whether or not an individual is actually in a position to make that decision for themselves. I like to use the example of choosing ice cream flavors. If you ask a four or five year old whether they would like to have vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream, that child absolutely has the capacity to make that decision for themselves. They don't need anyone else to tell them what's best for them. On the other hand, flip over to our world of complicated medical research and you're asking a child whether or not they want to participate in a new experimental drug therapy that might actually benefit them for a hard to treat disease that they're managing. That's not a decision that most four or five year olds can make move into the teenage years, there are absolutely some 16 and 17 year olds who will be capable of making those complex decisions. And there will be 16 and 17 year olds who are not. We're very lucky to be operating in Ontario where there is no age of medical consent. There's not an absolute cutoff that says, above this age, you make your own decisions below this age, someone's going to make them for you. And that's great because it means that we have the opportunity to individualize for every child whether or not that child is capable of making that decision. If there is a substitute decision maker consenting, we still have to respect the wishes of the child in the form of what's called assent. And this is the process of explaining to the child's best ability to understand what it means to participate in the research, what the risks and benefits are, and give them an opportunity to dissent, to say, I, I don't want to do that. And in trials where there's no therapeutic benefit, uh, we need to respect those wishes. There are, of course, cases where the research itself offers potential benefit to the child, and that's much more complicated if a child dissents and leads to very long conversations and hopefully education of the child as to why often the doctors and the parents feel it's in their best interest. Is that similar to when we see on the news when a child has a rare form of cancer or something where there isn't a treatment, but there is perhaps a treatment available in the research phase that could benefit them? Are those the sort of examples that we'd be speaking about with that? Absolutely, absolutely. When you have a difficult to treat disease where there is no uh, sort of what we would call standard of care that we expect to give them a really good outcome, but there is a new drug in the pipeline, that's the way we get that drug to that child. But it needs to be done in a way that everyone understands. We don't know if it's going to work. We need to look at the risks and the benefits. And as long as everyone understands that and is informed about the process, uh, it can be done in a very ethical manner. And that benefits potentially that child as well as other children later on who may have the same diagnosis. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is because we often hear from parents who have children with type 1 diabetes, and they're really disappointed that their child isn't eligible or able to be in a research study. And so they often wonder, why are these barriers? Can you talk a little about why that is? Absolutely. So the first thing I'd say is that we do talk about trials that offer new therapies uh, with a great deal of hope. And parents hear that and they think, okay, you know, diabetes is an important diagnosis. It's a chronic condition. What can I do? What can I do to improve my child's outcome in life? And they know that the standard of care, although fantastic, um, is still not perfect. There isn't a cure. And so, you know, knowing this, they're looking 
for anything else they can do of benefit. And there is a hope that research will offer that. This is something that we actually talk a lot about in research ethics. It's called therapeutic misconception. And that's the assumption that if you're involved in research, you will benefit. Where in fact, if the research is equitable, it could, should have what's called equipoise, which means there's an equal chance of the drug working or not working. Because if we already think scientifically that it works, we should just be using it and not studying it. And so it's very important for parents to recognize that being in research doesn't necessarily offer them access to new therapies. Although sometimes, absolutely it can. And these are the questions that parents should be asking when they're given the opportunity to participate in research. What are the risks and what are the benefits? And that's the benefits to the child who's participating and also the benefits to society. There are lots of very low risk uh, studies that we have going on that offer benefits that may not go directly to that child, but benefit knowledge in general, benefit the diabetes community, and benefit science in general, which advances all of society. So those are all the questions that we want parents to ask as they really get themselves informed about exactly what participating in this research might mean. When a parent is asking for a child to be in a research study, what are some of the things in place that the Research Ethics Board does that can help them feel a little bit safer and more secure if they are deciding to participate? That's a great question. Um, so we do a very careful uh, overview of exactly what the study looks like, what's going to be involved, what's being asked of the participants, kids, and sometimes also parents have a role to play in these projects. We look uh, at the details of the scientific protocol to make sure that it is scientifically sound um, and being executed in the safest way possible. We look at the budget to make sure that it's properly funded. Because if a research project runs out of money halfway through, that's a huge waste of everyone's time, energy, and potentially, you know, kids have been put at risk, hopefully only small, with no scientific outcome. So we do look to make sure that the study's not going to collapse partway through. We look for potential conflicts of interest. So for example, if a study is being funded by a pharmaceutical company, we wanna make sure that the people making the moment to moment decisions about protecting the safety of the participants aren't gonna be overly influenced by the potential profit that the drug might see in the long run. Uh, lots of other issues as well, but those are some of the major things that we examine. And so those are all really important. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting with your work is that research ethics goes far beyond just what you think of as traditional medicine. You recently had a paper in Nature Medicine talking about research ethics and artificial intelligence, which I think people often don't realize that as these new technologies come into play, we have to be thinking about the ethics behind the science and the research. Why do you think that's so important? I think that you know when we look at the field of research ethics as a whole, it is not just limited to medical research, but it, it's in fact uh, has oversight of all research on human subjects. So sociologists, when they do their projects, they also need to get approval, typically from a university research ethics board. And you know AI is this exciting new science that potentially adds a tremendous amount of uh, capacity to medical decision making. Um, um, but it is also 
has its own risks. And it's really important to assess all new science with the same framework that balances the risks and the benefits to the participants. And it's also really important not to assume that something's going to work just because you want it to. Very similar to the concept of therapeutic misconception that I talked about early on, where we we wouldn't be testing a drug if we didn't hope it would work. And the people who are behind it are actually really hoping it will work because they already, they're invested in that drug, right? They're pushing really hard um, uh, with great intentions. They want to bring new therapies. And artificial intelligence or machine learning, it uses that same framework of really hoping to offer benefit. But you can't put in something that changes the clinical care of people without testing it first. And that same paradigm can be applied all across advances in medicine. As we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about research ethics that maybe I've missed? Because I think that this is such an interesting topic, especially for parents who have children with type 1 who are hoping to get involved in research, or even those who are adults living with type 1 or type 2 who want to get involved in research. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that there is a bit of a frustration sometimes with research ethics boards, particularly among scientists who are trying to move their projects uh, forward. They go through uh, a lot of efforts to get projects funded, and then they just want to get going. And it can be difficult to have to take that pause to, to get your institutional approval to get um, the, the ethics board to sign off. But I think that that pause, which also involves evaluation by lay individuals who are not going to get all caught up in the scientific language and are make sure that the consent forms are actually readable by people who don't have a medical education or scientific expertise. All of those steps really do improve the science in the end. And it, it means that the people who are participating understand what they're doing and are there for the right reasons and are being supported in the right way. And I think that if you just remember that the Research Ethics Board is there to protect the participants, you really will see where we're coming from and what, what our goals are. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Stevenson. I appreciate it so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you to everyone listening today. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast or this topic, please share them with Diabetes Canada at info at diabetes.ca. You can also follow Diabetes Canada on all the social media channels. And if you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the podcast provider of your choice. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.